I was here a few weeks ago, and I'm going to kind of uh, take off from where we were. If you weren't here a few weeks ago when I was here previously, let me just give you a brief uh, review of what uh, we talked about. And then I want to talk about um, where God is in our sin, okay? But when I was here a few weeks ago, if you remember, if you, uh, we, we, we talked about the idea that we have an incorrect view of God many times. And what we really need is to refocus and read the scriptures and get our minds fixed on Jesus again and to continue to have a, a correct view of who God is. Because many times we have the, the, uh, the problem of, of veering off of who God is. And I use a quote uh, by A.W. Tozer. It says, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we need to have the correct view of God. And if you remember, um, we, we use a story out of Luke chapter 7 of Jesus uh, having a meal with a Pharisee. If you remember, Simon the Pharisee had the meal with Jesus, and he had a view of God. He had a view of who God was. And uh, during this dinner party, uh, a guest came in, an unwanted guest, a prostitute came in and interrupted this dinner. And she had a view of God, a completely different view of God. And so we looked at these two different views. For Simon, God to him, for a man and God to have a relationship was based upon what he did. It was based upon his works, how righteous he was. And that is an incorrect view of God. But the woman... She understood that God accepted her based not on what she had done. In fact, the opposite. She was a sinner and she knew that. But she was accepted by God not based on her, her works at all, but based solely upon the mercy of God and the grace of God. And she had the correct view of God. If you remember, we brought up a, an office chair in here and we talked about how our view of God is often one where uh, if we do good for him, he is pleasing, he is facing us. But when we fall away, when we displease him, he starts to turn his back on us. And it becomes this relationship where it's like a swivel chair, where we, if we do good, he loves us. If we don't do good, then he turns his back on us. And it's this constant swivel chair theology, and we suffer with this. And what we talked about was we need to reorient our minds again. We need to have the correct view of God, which is a God of mercy and grace. It's not based upon our works at all. That's where we were. And today I want to kind of talk about something else similar, but a little bit different. And I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. You have your Bible with you, or if you have an app, whichever one that you choose to use this morning. I want us to get a once again a correct view of God this morning. And, and so the question is this: what is our view of God in our sin? How do we think of God when it comes to our sin? Okay? So we're gonna look at the story of David this morning. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for uh, this church. Thank you for um, Lord, the, just the years of, of ministry and the years of faithfulness this church was just even in my life. And I, I pray, Lord, you bless them today. And I pray, God, as we open your word, that you'll speak to our hearts. Lord, you'll reorient, reorient our minds to the correct view of who you are, Lord. Help us to focus on the scriptures this morning. Teach us, Lord, and guide us in all truth through your Holy Spirit. And pray all these things in your name. Amen. The quote again by A.W. Tozer is, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And many of us have an incorrect view of God. That's why it's important that we constantly be in the scriptures. Because when we, when we reject the scriptures and we don't read them, uh, we have a tendency to fall away from them. And so we need to be in the scriptures. And so our view of God becomes skewed oftentimes and we need constant reminding. 
This morning I want to talk to you about the gospel. And I want to remind you that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. So we often think, oh, the gospel, that must mean for unbelievers. No, we need to remember that the gospel is for believers too. And so at the end of this message, I want us to be reminded, believers, of the gospel today. Okay? So that's the goal of this message, is that we would reorient our minds around the gospel. So I want to ask you this morning, very, very beginning. When you sin, when you sin, what is your mental image of God in your sin? When you knowingly reject him, when you knowingly, continually choose sin, choose to serve an idol, choose to reorient your life around worldly things, you know what that is. Whatever your vice is, the sin that you struggle with, in that sin, in that moment, what is your mental image of God? What do, you, what do you think he looks like? What do you think he's doing with his face? How does he look at you in your sin? So if you're anything like me, um, my mental image of God, and answer to that question, is it's kind of like this. Um, I've, I often view God in my mind that when I sin, that it is a mental image that I have of him turning his back on me in disappointment. Shaking his head. Kind of like, are you serious again? It's just this. That, that's my mental image of God. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm just being transparent with you. This is often how I would answer that question. I'm sitting there today. And it almost comes with an eye roll, too. I have an eight-year-old daughter, and she's got this down. She's not even a teenager yet. She's got the eye roll down. If you've raised teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the whole, like, you know what I mean? You guys have seen that, right? My eight-year-old daughter has it down. So it even has an eye roll. So in my sin, my view of God is that he looks at me, I sin, and I turn and look at him, and his face is one with an eye roll, a head shake, and this. That's, that's my view of God in my sin. What about you? How do you view God in your sin? See, I think my view of God is that in that moment, I don't feel like God really loves me. It's more like he tolerates me. It's almost as if he's saying, oh, gosh, I did write that John 3.16 thing. I guess I got to love you, Nate, because I'm God and I have to. But so, therefore, yes, I forgive you. You're forgiven. That's, that's the type of relationship I feel like I have in my sin with God. And I'm going to give away the end of the sermon right here. That is an incorrect view of God. It's an incorrect view of God. And I want to prove it to you this morning by two stories. One is an Old Testament story. Because I want to prove to you this is not a New Testament God. This is the God of old. This is who God is. This is who he always has been. And we're going to, we're going to talk about David this morning. And we're also going to talk about a New Testament story that's very, very famous in the prodigal son. Okay? But first off, let's, let's uh, look at the story of David. The story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I love this story. Because David is described as a man after God's own heart. He wrote many of the Psalms that we have in our scripture. He is regarded as the greatest king who's ever lived, right? And yet the Bible's clear that he, he was a man who sinned greatly. And if you know this story, I want you to imagine if David was the president of the United States. If a scandal like this happened, 
None of us, none of us would say, you know what, but he should be king still. Okay? None of us. We would say, get that man out of here. We would not show any mercy and grace. And I want you to see is God is not like us. <laughs> and he has mercy and grace on this man. And I love this story because it shows us the depth of this man's sin. And I really want to get into that this morning because I want to see where was God in David's sin. Because if God was with David in his sin, surely he's with me. Okay? So we're going to kind of read through. We're going to skip some of this for the sake of time, but we're going to read through a lot of it. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. If you take notes, um, the first point would be this. David abuses his power. David abuses his power. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me in chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about this woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Stop there for a moment. Sin will always, hear me, sin will always take you down a path you never intended to go. David did not wake up that morning and say, you know what, today, today I'm going to break a bunch of the Ten Commandments. I just, I want to break a bunch of the Ten Commandments. In fact, by the end of the story in chapter 11, by my count, he will break at least five of the Ten Commandments. So I don't think when David arose that day, he said, you know what, today I'm just going to, I want to see how far sin can take me. It was just a normal day. Sin will always take you down a path you never, ever intended to go. So David should have been leading his army, yet uh, he remained back alone. Notice it says that he sent Joab and he sent all of Israel, but he remained back. This is something that kings would have done. They would have gone to battle, but David stayed back. So we see a little bit of laziness here. And so in verse 2, it says, we see David's first sin. What does he do? He, he lusts. He begins to lust after this woman that he sees in Bathsheba. He, he desires her. And then it says in verse 3 that he inquires about her. And then he learns who she actually is. It's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And he still says, listen, listen, my, my, uh, my version here says that he took her. David is abusing his power. So he lusts after her. He hears that this is another man's wife. And yet he still says, mm, yeah, you know what? I still want her. And he goes and he uses his power as king to take her. Now, Uriah was not just some random soldier. Uriah, who's that guy? I never heard of him. Go, go get her. Listen, Uriah, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 29, Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. These men were loyal to David. In fact, they were loyal to him before David was even king, during the days of Saul. In other words, Uriah was a valiant warrior who was not even an Israelite. He was, from, he was a Hittite. But he, he neglected his heritage and said, I want to follow this king, this God of Israel. I believe in him. I'm going to believe in this King David. I'll give my life for him. He was one of David's 30 mighty men, one of the most loyal people to go to the death for this man. That's who Uriah the Hittite was. He dedicated his life to the king even before David took the throne. So this is Uriah. He was, he was faithful to the king. We're going to see that in a few verses. 
But David lets his lust control him, and he abuses his power. And so we see him not only lust, but now he covets his neighbor's wife. Another one of the Ten Commandments. So we see in verse 5, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And he breaks the second commandment. You shall not commit adultery. See, sin takes you down a path you never intended to go. David did not intend to do this. But now he's got to cover it up. So we see David abuses his power. Second point is this. David attempts to cover it up. David attempts to cover it up. He has to. He has to save face. Look what he does in verse 6. After he learns that she's pregnant. Says this, so David sent word to Joab, send Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down into his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down into his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down into his house. David attempts to cover it up. So David does not come clean about his own sin. Instead, David attempts to cover up his sin by enticing Uriah to come home and be with his wife. And if he can do this, this will all go away. But I want you to notice sin takes you down a path you never intended to go. Notice David begins by lying to Uriah, breaking another one, Ten Commandments. He bears false witness. So he sends him and he inquires of him. So when Uriah comes in, it's not a, hey, hey, buddy, I need to confess something to you. It's a, hey, the reason I called you in here is because I want to see how the war was going. How's Joab doing as a leader? I want your opinion, Uriah. Okay. Oh, by the way, while you're here, you might as well go home. So he's lying. He's, you see how the sin is taking him down a path he never intended to go. The verse 9 says, it shows uh, Uriah refuses to even go into his house. He sleeps at the door of the king's house. His loyalty to protect the king takes priority even over his own desires, even over his own house. In verse 10 through 11, Uriah gives his reasoning that he will not enjoy the pleasures of life while his fellow soldiers are out in battle. And I love that the contrast that Samuel here when he's writing, he's wanting to show us the contrast between David, a king, a man after God's own heart, yet sin is taking him down a path he never intended to go, and Uriah, this man who is faithful, honorable, trustworthy, is the opposite of David. He's wanting to contrast these two, and it's just so striking at what he does. So David, once again, tries to get Uriah to go in his home, even makes him drunk. Tempts him with wine, gets him drunk. But even while drunk, Uriah is more honorable than David is when he's sober. See the contrast here? David, a king after God's own heart, is the weak one, while Uriah is the loyal and selfish one. David couldn't resist the temptation of sin, but Uriah, even when drunk with wine, does what is honorable and faithful and rejects sin. So his attempt to cover up his sin fails. So... Because sin takes you down a path you never intended to go, and you try to cover it up, it's going to continue to go down a path you never intended to go. So what does David have to do? 
Well, he commits the unthinkable. That's the third point. David commits the unthinkable. And for the sake of time, I'm going to have to tell you this portion of the story. You can read on verses 14 through 25. The scripture says that uh, in the morning, David resorted to another idea. Since Uriah would not play his part in the cover-up, David would tell Joab to put Uriah in the front lines in battle. Verse 14 and 15 show the depth of, of, of David's sin. It shows you how deep his sin goes. Look, look at verse 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Think of that. He sent his death notice, the command to put him on the front lines. Who did he give that piece of paper to? Uriah. He gave his own death notice to, to Uriah. He carried his own death sentence to Joab. How sick is that? How sick is that? By the hand of Uriah. Verse 15. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the front of the hardest of the fighting and draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So when the fighting is the toughest, he tells Joab, everybody fall back. Take everybody and command them to fall back. So basically, Joab, tell everybody else here's the plan. Just don't tell Uriah. Draw back. Now, I'm sure in this room, there's a lot of you who served in the military, served uh, uh, in the front lines in battle. And there's something about a unit, a brotherhood that unites one another, right? That you would literally lay down your life for your brother, your soldiers, right? Can you imagine having to obey an order where you had to fall back so that one of your own could die? Who would think about doing that? They would never think about doing that. But the king commanded them to do it. You see the depth of sin that David has gone down. He, he, can't, he can't control himself. It took him down a path he never intended to go. And it started with just a morning stroll, looking outside. So he breaks another one of the, the commandments of committing murder. And he justifies this by saying it just happened in battle. I want you to see the depth of David's sin. David, in just a few short days, has gone down a path that he never intended to go. This is what sin does. It blinds you. It lies to you. It tells you that this will all be worth it. And so here's, here's where it took David. David covered his, covered his neighbor's wife. David stole another man's wife. David committed adultery with her. David bore false witness and lied to Uriah in an attempt to cover up his sin. And David committed murder by abandoning his most loyal of soldiers. So five of the Ten Commandments David broke in a matter of days. So here's a question. Where was God in his sin? God has not been mentioned at all in chapter 11 until the very last verse here. Where was God? How does God respond to David? After all, David would have known this because this was the law. Listen to the law. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So just on the sin of adultery, David deserved death. David knew that. Let's say that's not enough. What about murder? Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. 
Leviticus 24, 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be, per, be put to death. David's in trouble. He's in trouble. He tried to cover up his own skin, or his, own, his own sin. And so where was God? If God is faithful to his word. David deserves punishment. He deserves death. But I want you to see what happens uh, in chapter 12. Chapter 12. So here's God's response today. Where was God in David's sin? Most scholars believe this is six months later. So I want you to understand David believes that he has covered this up. The problem's gone. Uriah, Uriah's dead. The Bible says in verse uh, 26 and 27 here that um, David brought Bathsheba to be his wife. And she bore him a son. And the last verse there says, but the thing that David had done had pleased the Lord. That's one time the Lord's name is used here in this whole chapter. Six months pass between chapter 11 and chapter 12. David's attempted to cover up his sin. I think he thinks he's gotten away with it. Okay, I think I haven't heard anything. Things are fine. I actually look like a hero here because this valiant man died in battle and his wife, who is pregnant with a son, I'm going to swoop in and take care of her. Okay? Six months pass. He's gotten away with it. Then comes prophet Nathan, and uh, we won't read the whole story, but Nathan comes to him and confronts him because God has revealed to him what is happening. He tells him a story. He tells a story about a rich man who had a lot of sheep. He had flocks that you could not count, and he had herds uh, of sheep. And there was a poor man who had only one tiny little lamb. And he, Nathan even goes into detail and says that this little lamb was like a family pet, that they loved him. They named him, and it was so close. It was like a family pet. And this lamb was very important to the poor man in this family, like a daughter to them. And so this, the story is this rich man throws a party, and instead of killing one of his own lambs, which he has plenty of them, he stole from the poor man this one lamb that he had. And the Bible says that, that uh, David became angry at the story because he believed it to be true. He believed Nathan was bringing the story of what's happened in this kingdom. And so David becomes angry, and he yells, and he demands to know where the man is so that he may die for what he has done. And it's amazing how sin takes us down a path we never intended to go, but sin also blinds us to where we don't even see our own sin. We see other people's sin, but we don't see our own. And that's what happened with David. He becomes indignant at this man's sin, yet he is so blinded that he doesn't even see his own sin. And there's a beautiful, scary verse, verse 7, where Nathan responds to him and says, you are that man. It's like a mic drop right there. You're that man. Boom. If you know what that means. So God confronts his sin right there. I want you to see God's response to David. So God here, where is God in his sin? Verses 8 through 10 here. It says this, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with a sword and the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. 
So God shows up in David's sin. And what is it? It's punishment for what he had done. And we see, we know this, you know the story, Dave, these things all came to pass. He says, there's always going to be chaos and violence in your family because of this sin. You know the story of Tamar, the whole mess that David goes through with his family and all this chaos and violence that will happen. We also see with, later on with Absalom, um, the story in, in, in uh, chapter 16, Second Samuel, his wives will be taken and violated in broad daylight, which the Lord says is one of his punishments. And also Bathsheba's baby would die later on in this chapter. So God confronts David's sin. But, but again, I want you to see this. You would expect God to hand down the grace of all punishments, right? At the end of that verse, all these things, David, are going to happen because of your sin. Oh, and by the way, to stay true to my word in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Genesis, because of what you have done, you will die. We expect that to be the next verse. We expect that God will hand down the ultimate punishment of death because of David's sin. But I want you to see that doesn't what happens. Look at what happens in verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Instead of, instead of finding death, God offers mercy and grace. See, the gospel is not just something that happened in the New Testament. The gospel has been who God has been all along. God forgives sin. Where there is death that is deserved, God grants mercy and grace. And the reason I told you that story is I want you to see the depth of David's sin. But his sin was not so deep where the Father's love did not go deeper. And if David in his sin can find grace and mercy, you and I can find grace and mercy as well. This is the good news. This is the good news of Jesus, we find even in the Old Testament. But I want to ask you, where was God in David's sin? Where was God in David's sin? Now I want you to see, he was present. God did not lead David. God did not do what Nate often thinks of God doing in my sin, of turning his back, shaking his head, rolling his eyes, and walking away. On the contrary, God was present, where not only did he not leave David, but he actually pursued David. David was not even thinking about the Lord. David thought he got away with his sin for six months, but it was God who came and sent the prophet Nathan to confront his sin. God was the one who acted and came towards the sinner. This is what God does. He is present. He doesn't leave. He actually pursues and runs after the sinner with grace. See, David is pursuing sin, but God never stopped pursuing David. And God provided. He provided a way. So that's the Old Testament. I want to tell you a quick story in the New Testament. And for the sake of time also, we're going to summarize the story of the prodigal son. You've probably heard it's one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told. It's one of my favorites. You know the story. The younger son desired his wealth, his father's wealth, more than he did his father. And he told his father, I want your inheritance even before you're dead, which would have been a huge slap in the face. Basically saying, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, can you go ahead and give me the money that you will when you do finally die? So the father, out of his love for his son, gives him and grants him his inheritance. The Bible says that he spent everything on sinful living. He ran out of it. He spent everything on sin and eventually ends up working um, 
at a pig farm taking care of pigs. And he's so hungry that he actually longed to eat what the pigs ate. And it was in that pig slop, living with pigs, where he finally, the Bible says, where he comes to his senses. And he says to himself, even the servants in my father's house, house have better food, have better lodging than I do. And he gets this idea, maybe, just maybe, I could go back to my father. I can never be a son again. I, I get that. But I can maybe go back maybe, and be a servant. Just maybe he'll have mercy on me, just possible. But even if I try, it's better than what's here. So the Bible says that he decides in his mind that he's going to go. So he goes, and he goes to the father's house. But I want you to remember the story. Son prepares this whole speech he's going to give to the father. But he doesn't even get to the speech because as he approaches the house, what is the father doing? Running towards him. The father is seen running towards the son. He grabs him, embraces him. He restores him. He puts a ring back on his finger, which signified that you are my son. He put sandals back on his feet and he dressed him in the family robe. And then he told his servants to go celebrate, get the fattened calf, get the best calf we have. We're having a huge party. Invite everybody because my son was lost, but now he's found. Son couldn't even get to his speech. And yet the father is the one who, in mercy and grace, forgives his son. He runs toward him. So when the son sins, the father did not forsake him. Now, there were consequences for his sin, yes. But the son found grace. The father ran to the son, and he pursued him, just like David. But I love, there's a part of the story that's often not told, and that's the one of the older son. The story of the older son is that he gets a little jealous and upset with the father. Remember this? He's upset because he says, Father, I have been faithful to you. I didn't leave and squander all the inheritance like he did. And yet when he comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. And you haven't even done anything for me and my friends when we're faithful to you. And so he's jealous. But I love this. It's part of the story we often neglect. The Bible says that the son uh, did not want to go in, into the party. He stayed outside. And just a small little portion of this passage says that the father went out to the son. Here again, even in that older son's sin, what does the father do? He goes to him. This is who the father is. The younger son, he runs to him. The older son, when he leaves the party and refuses to come in, and is upset with the father, what does the father do? Does he turn his back on him and say, wow, I thought I raised him better. No, what does he do? He goes outside the party and pursues the older son in his sin as well. This is who the father is. What does the father do with David? Does he leave him in his sin? No. What does he do? He pursued David. This is, this is what God does in our sin. So when David sinned, God did not forget him. He pursued him. And the younger brother's sin against his father, the father did not forget him. He pursued him. And the older brother's sin, the father did not forget him. He pursued him. And in your and my sin, God does not forget us. He pursues us. This is what we need to be reminded of today. That my view, and some, maybe it's your view as well, that in our sin, God turns his back and shakes his head and rolls his eyes at us. That is not the God of the Bible. And on the contrary, the idea is that when we are going in this direction of sin, the Bible calls for us to repent. That means to change our minds about sin. 
Here's what I think sometimes we have. We realize, okay, I need to do that. So we'll walk in this direction of sin. We realize this is a path I don't want to go, and I want to repent. So we turn, and we expect God to be far off. We expect him to be walking that direction away. Even if he isn't walking away, he's really far away because I've walked away from him. So what we have to do then is we turn and look, and it's like, wow, he's really far away. Okay, well, I better start walking this way. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because i got to make my way back to him, to long distance. So this is where we get into the swivel chair theology. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. Okay, I'm going to reject all these bad things and do all these good things. And maybe after a while I will get back to the Father. That's an incorrect view of God. Here's the biblical view of God. That we are, when we are walking in sin, it will take us down a path we never intended to go. But when God pursues us, he taps us on the shoulder, and we are called to repentance. And when we turn in repentance, we don't find him far off. What we do is we find him right there. That's the good news of the gospel. We expect to turn, and he's far off. When in reality, we turn, and he has been pursuing us the whole time, and he's right there with open arms, embracing us in grace and mercy. That's the God the Bible. Now, I need to say this. This doesn't mean that we are, that there are no consequences of our sin. Paul says this, should we just keep on sinning then so grace may abound? Should we just then be like, well, he's going to be right behind me. When I turn and repent, so I'll just go down this path and turn, repent, hug him, and then go back this way, turn, repent, hug him. It's just going to be this relationship because they'll always be there. Thanks, Nate, for that. Now I can just keep going down this path and just turn around, and, and he's there. Paul says, by no means. We don't, we don't just do this so that grace may abound. The true believer does not walk in sin. We're new creatures. We, we are not meant to walk this way. We've been born again. So the true believer does not take advantage of grace like that. There are consequences to our sin. But I want you to hear this morning. In your sin, God does not forsake you. God does not forsake you. Rather, he pursues you because he has provided a way through the sacrifice of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. So here's the application. Where is God in our sin? He is present. He's pursuing us. He's not far off. When we repent, we turn finding him right there behind us. We'll not find a father that is far off that we must work our way back to with good deeds. He has done the deed already. He has done the work on the cross. So we can't do that. We don't need to do that. He has done the work and he has provided the way in Jesus. So Christian, here's what you need to hear today. If you're a believer in this room or watching online, what you need to be reminded today is the gospel again. You need to be reminded of the gospel again. It's not just for unbelievers. You have sinned, but God has provided grace through Jesus Christ. You and I, we continue to sin, don't we? So Christian, today what you may need to do is repent. Repent. But in your repentance, remember that when you repent of your sin and expect that he's going to be far away. And before he enters your mind where I got to do all these things and make up for all those things, remember the gospel today. That when you repent, what you find is a father pursuing you. He's been pursuing you the whole time. That's what you need to be reminded of today. Be reminded of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ.
Maybe you're in this room and you're not a believer. You're a sinner. And hearing the gospel today, maybe for the first time. It's the same good news for you as it is for the Christian. It's no different. Your sin is great. The Bible says that your sin leads to death. You deserve death. David deserved death. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. So the gospel today is that your sin will lead you to death. It will lead you to death. But God offers repentance for you. Of his kindness, he says, repent, turn to me, and you will find forgiveness. You don't have to work for it. I've done the work for you. So sinner, today, turn, repent from your sin. And what you're going to find is a loving father who has been pursuing you when you didn't even realize it. And all you have to do is repent, turn, believe, trust in him. That's it. Trust in him today, and you'll find forgiveness. Ready to save you and offer you eternal life. So believer, believe the gospel again today. Remember the good news. Look at David's life. See the depth of his sin. Repent. Turn right now. Because sin will take you down a path you never intended to go. Repent. Turn. But find grace and mercy right there this morning. Be reminded that you can find that. Sinner, believe the gospel today. For the first time, believe it. Turn, repent, and you'll find a loving father offering you forgiveness and grace and eternal life. All right, let's pray. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment and ask them to come on up. And this morning, wherever you are, the application is very simple. Repent. Everybody, all of us. It's not just for those who are non-believing today. It's for all of us that we need to turn and repent of our sin. Father, we confess that to you. We often forsake you, but you never forsake us. Father, we choose idols. We choose to serve other things other than you, Lord, and forgive us, Father, because that will lead us on a path we never intended to go. So, Father, would you forgive us? For those in this room, maybe it's just that. We just need to repent and ask for the Father's forgiveness. But when you do, don't listen to the the lies of the devil who, who then tell you you have to make up for all that. Listen, Christian, listen to the word of God. Remember the love of the Father where you turn And repentance, and you find grace, you find mercy from the Father. So maybe that's you today, you need to repent. And maybe you also need to repent of your sin because you're seeking after eternal life. I mean, here, let me tell you this morning, you can find that. And we'd love to share with you more after the service. You can find myself, you can find Todd or someone else. We'd love to talk to you about how you can find grace and mercy today. So that's the application, that's the call today. And as we sing, Father, would you draw us, would you draw all of us back to the loving arms of forgiving Father? Thank you so much, Lord, for your grace and your mercy for us, that it's not contingent upon us. Lord, I'm thankful that you don't, you don't do as I often think you do in turning your back on me and shaking your head in disappointment. Lord, you are actually pursuing after me. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy on my life. Lord, help me not forget that. Lord, you love us, and so therefore we love you.